7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Across Asia, life as a migrant worker was tough even before the pandemic. Low status, crowded dormitories, extortion-minded employers. As COVID-19 crushed the industries that employed them, things got even worse and only now seem to be improving. And there's a perplexing preponderance of pop stars in the charts who are ethnic Albanians. We take a look at why the tiny Balkan region has given rise to so many huge celebrities. But first... President Donald Trump is still in the hospital with questions about the seriousness of his illness. Yesterday, he released his third video since announcing on Friday morning that he had been diagnosed with COVID-19. I learned a lot about COVID. I learned it by really going to school. This is the real school. This isn't the let's read the book school. And I get it and I understand it. I also think we're going to pay a little surprise to some of the great patriots that we have out on the street. That surprise visit involved Mr. Trump briefly leaving the hospital for a drive past for the benefit of supporters gathered outside. Doctors caring for the president have suggested he may be discharged today, though information about his condition given out over the weekend has been conflicting, to say the least. Mr. Trump's oxygen level dipped twice, and he received a steroid treatment that's normally reserved for severe cases of COVID-19. His physician, Dr. Sean Conley, was initially reluctant to disclose that the president had been given oxygen. Didn't want to give uh, any, uh, any information that might uh, steer the, uh, the course of illness in another direction. Um, and in doing so, uh, you know, it came off uh, that we were trying to hide something, which wasn't necessarily true. An admission that came after Chief of Staff Mark Meadows briefed reporters that the president's vital signs had been concerning. A number of senior government officials and aides have themselves tested positive, some of whom had attended a largely maskless event in the White House Rose Garden the previous Saturday to mark the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Last week, Mr. Trump attended a rally on Wednesday and a fundraiser on Thursday at one of his golf clubs in New Jersey. Beyond pressing questions about the state of Mr. Trump's health and when precisely he knew he was ill and contagious, or questions about the impact all this will have on the election. To have a president in hospital, not for routine procedure, is extraordinary anyway. To have that happen less than a month before a presidential election, in which an incumbent president really needs to make up a lot of ground, is yet more extraordinary. John Prido is our US editor and hosts Checks and Balance, our podcast about American politics. There's been a lot of conflicting information coming from the White House and coming from the president's doctor about exactly how he is. But it looks like he's likely to be 
out of hospital and back in the White House today. Nevertheless, this is an extraordinary thing to have happened so close to a presidential election. And, and Mr. Trump said that he's he's learned a lot about COVID. Are, are we starting to see any effect of that, any change in the way he, he speaks about it, deals with it? Yes, I wondered when I heard that phrase, his polling is really not good at the moment. And I wonder whether his pollsters are saying to him, listen, the American people don't like the way that you were downplaying COVID-19, the way you were talking about masks during the debate. When needed, I wear a mask. Okay, let me ask. I don't, have to, I don't wear masks like him. Every time you see him, he's got a mask. He could be speaking... You need to change the way you speak about this. And his own infection with the virus gives him the opportunity to do that. I I think it's still very early. I mean, clearly he's been hospitalized. He's been communicating via Twitter a bit. And then he had a photo op where he was driven around in, in the beast, his presidential limo. He hasn't done a whole load of communicating yet. So I think it's too early to say he's changed the way he communicates about this virus. And in the meantime, what what's the American public making of all this? Well, lots of Americans, of course, have sent their best wishes to the president for his speedy recovery. In a more scientific way, we won't know until high-quality polls come in towards the middle or towards the end of this week. It takes a bit of time for those surveys to be conducted. You can look at other presidents, prime ministers who've contracted the virus. Boris Johnson in Britain, of course, Jair Bolsonaro, president of Brazil. Them contracting the virus didn't hurt them politically in their poll rating. It didn't give them a huge bump either. And so there's been a lot of discussion about whether President Trump will enjoy a big sympathy bump in the polls. Certainly, if you look at other leaders, that doesn't seem hugely likely. It seems more likely that President Trump's diagnosis will will be a wash. And and as you say, it's extremely early days. But what effects do you think this will likely have on on the campaigning on, on both sides? Well, I think it has quite an important effect on the campaign, Jason, actually. President Trump, for weeks, has been keen to make this election about anything other than COVID-19. So to make it about Joe Biden's age, or to make it about the left wing of the Democratic Party, to make it about law and order. This election, because of the president's diagnosis, and because 200,000 Americans are are dead from COVID-19, is going to be squarely about the virus and the president's handling of it. And he doesn't have a lot of time to change that. He would, of course, have been restricted anyway in the number of rallies he could hold. He likes holding big rallies with big crowds, hasn't been able to do that so much this year, won't be able to do it now at all, I think, before the election. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is out campaigning. So, Joe Biden is in the Midwest at the moment doing some campaigning while President Trump is in, is in hospital. We can get this pandemic under control so we can get our economy working again for everyone. But this cannot be a partisan moment. It must be an American moment. It's possible to overstate the importance of those kind of candidate appearances in swing states. But nevertheless, it's hard not to see that this hands the Biden campaign a bit of an advantage. And again, it's not absolutely clear that Mr. Trump is, is out of the woods yet. I mean, what would happen if he were unable to continue campaigning at all? Well, as we were saying, Jason, the likeliest outcome here is that the president is out of hospital, recovers enough to be effectively at the top of the ticket on November the 3rd. However, were that not to be the case, it's too late to remove his name from the ballot. About 3 million Americans have already voted 
In effect, that would mean that the election on November the 3rd would become a Biden v. Pence election. And there are some Republicans who might prefer that to a Trump v. Biden election. But it doesn't look like that's what's going to happen at the moment. It it looks like the election will will proceed as expected. Certainly the date won't be changed or, or anything like that. And in the meantime, all of the rest of the business of Washington has to carry on. I mean, how much do you do you think this and, and the fact that so many people in Washington have now fallen ill, how will that affect the, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court? Yes, Jason, this is the second biggest question in American politics right now, if you like. The president and his party would like to get Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court before Election Day. The timetable to do that is quite tight. And it's complicated by the fact that some members of the Senate Judiciary Committee have tested positive for COVID-19. So it may be possible to do all these hearings virtually and get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed. But it looks harder than it did last week to get that done before the election. Now, that doesn't mean that she's not going to be on the court because Republicans can still confirm her after Election Day in the lame duck session. But you're right to point out that COVID-19 is playing havoc with the process of American politics as well as with the presidential election. It does seem, though, that the Trump campaign has been hit with stumbling blocks left and right recently. I mean, do you see a path for him to pull it out of a hat, as it were? Well, one of the lessons of the past few years watching American politics, Jason, is to always expect the low probability thing, to not discount it entirely. However, with that disclaimer, I would just point out the president's polling at the moment is truly awful. He's 14 points down against Joe Biden in the latest NBC Wall Street Journal poll. That's the worst poll I've ever seen for Donald Trump. Now, it may be that it's an outlier. We'll get some more high-quality polls soon, and then we'll be able to see whether that poll is just a statistical freak or something strange happened in the sample. But if it's true, he is in such a deep hole, I find it very, very hard to imagine him coming back from that. Thanks very much for your time, John. Thanks, Jason. The Economist is analyzing polling, economic and demographic data to predict the outcomes of America's presidential and Senate elections. The analysis is updated every day as high-quality polls catch up with a turbulent news cycle. To find out more, visit economist.com slash US 2020 model. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. The Asia-Pacific region is both the world's biggest supplier and the biggest user of migrant labor. Some 33 million migrants are estimated to work there, building the gleaming cities and resorts, pampering the growing middle classes at home, and filling countless other service industry posts. There's a huge demand for the services of the uh, low-cost labor. Alex Ong runs the Indonesian charity Migrant Care. It works mainly with Indonesian migrant workers in Malaysia. He visits cleaners and construction workers who often live in squalid conditions. The construction workers Normally, they are living in the in the container or the or the plywood makeshift home. 
is divided into a small compartment, probably occupied by two person or three person. And the hostels where cleaners live are no better. We can see the red running all over the places, roaches running all over the places, and they all sleep on the floor, no bed. When the pandemic struck, things got worse for millions of migrant workers across the region. Some of the most hellish conditions have been in what seem to be island paradises. The Maldives relies hugely upon foreign workers, more than any other country in the region. Something like uh, one Indian or Bangladeshi is working there temporarily for every Maldivian citizen. And they're absolutely essential to both building and running the resorts that are the lifeblood of the Maldives' economy. Dominic Ziegler writes Banyan, our column about Asian affairs. But of course, since March, that economy has been under lockdown. There have been few, if any, tourists. And that has had disastrous consequences for the resorts. As a result, 200 Indians and Bangladeshis who had been building a new resort on a distant atoll found themselves forced to work without any pay. They've been living in pretty grim conditions with restricted clean water, not even soap. They have struggled to make their voices heard to seek redress for not being paid. They first staged a silent protest near the resort. They then went to a kind of island suburb of the capital, Male. Uh, There they protested in July and uh, were immediately arrested by the police, accused by the government of threatening national security. There were scuffles with the police, and a a number of them were arrested and then deported. And is that sorry state of affairs for for migrant workers representative of, of conditions across Asia? It's all too representative. I mean, think possibly of the best place to be a migrant worker. That's in Singapore. Singapore would not shine and gleam as it does were it not for something like 320,000 labourers, most of them from South Asia, who toil night and day. Now, those 320,000 live in dormitories on the edge of town, usually out of sight. Early on in the pandemic, Singapore got lots of praise, including from the WHO, for its handling of COVID-19. But Singapore had a blind eye, and that was these dorms where the coronavirus was spreading very, very fast. In fact, Today, something like 95% of all coronaviruses in Singapore to date have been in these dorms, have been amongst foreign workers. But these are the lucky ones. They have beds, they've been given extra food, they've been given entertainment and Wi-Fi to keep in touch with their families. In next-door Malaysia, the picture is rather grimmer. How so? What's happening in Malaysia? Something like four or five million documented or undocumented foreign workers have really kept the economy humming for years. Now, whilst the economy was growing, the authorities often turned a blind eye even to the undocumented foreign workers. But uh, under the pandemic, the authorities moved very quickly. For instance, there's a vast wholesale market on the edge of Kuala Lumpur, the capital. Uh, The authorities, in in effect, threw up uh, barbed wire around where foreign workers, refugees, would-be asylum seekers were living and attempting to eke out a living in the market. In effect, they've been impounded. More than that, apart from the appalling conditions they're living in, migrant workers have been harassed by the authorities. Several thousand have been arrested, and many others have faced not only prison terms, but also canings. 
And in the Maldives, you mentioned that the lockdown, the, the stopping of construction work had been very harmful to, to the workers there. Is, is the reverse true? As, as economies in Asia are reopening, are things improving? Well, in some places they are, and that's certainly notable in Malaysia, where a lot of factories typically are, are manned by foreign workers. One boom area is for latex gloves, and Malaysia seems to have a lock on that market. So, yes, there's work. But, of course, some of the same grim conditions still persist. There's still the issue there also of trying to survive in a country where your residency permit has, during the pandemic, expired. So a lot of people are sort of stuck in limbo, either because there aren't any flights or because they have no money or because they're frightened of declaring themselves to the authorities. I mean, is there any hope for, for change here? Is, is there pushback from, from the public in Asia to, to this sort of thing? There is. I mean, the concern that's shown by civil society is always too little. But there are some admirable people who are trying to push back. In the case of the labourers in the Maldives, uh, the Public Interest Law Centre, which is an NGO, is trying to get these workers access to the law and to the compensation that is due to them. It's a long, slow process, uh, and they're having uh, trouble uh, trying to get the authorities to pay attention to this. In Malaysia, some... NGO types, uh, others who've been helping migrant workers, including with food aid in recent months, think that now that there's an economic recovery starting to show itself, there's also a golden opportunity to do away with some of the worst abuses of foreign workers. And in Malaysia, one very notable uh, way in which workers are abused is that quotas for foreign workers are given to politically connected Malaysians who then, in effect, sell on the workers to businesses that need them. This is a system that is absolutely ripe for abuse. And people who who have tried to improve the lot of foreign workers say that now is the time to pressure government to improve the system. Dominic, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Ethnic Albanians spread throughout Balkan countries, including Albania, Kosovo, and North Macedonia, have a long and rich history of emigration, especially since the decline of communism in the 1990s. Yet not that many have made big names for themselves, until recently. What's amazing is that a real clutch of global pop stars are Albanians, and this is something new. I mean, until now, the most famous Albanian in history, probably, was the nun, Mother Teresa. Tim Judah is our Balkans correspondent. I've identified at least seven stars with Albanian heritage who are really getting pretty big now in the world. So run us through them. Who are they? Well, let's talk about the two most famous ones who grew up in Britain. The real pathfinder was Rita Ora. She's 29. She was born in Pristina, in Kosovo, and she was the first to come to prominence, and she did so in 2012 with Shine Your Light. Which was filmed famously in Pristina, probably the first sort of global pop video to be filmed in the capital of Kosovo. And there you see her wearing a Kosovo flag. And interestingly, she went to the same school here in London as uh, Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa's parents are from Kosovo. She was actually born in London. 
She has a song in the charts now called Hallucinate, and she got to number two earlier this year with Don't Start Now. Two of the pop stars who were raised in the US are Bebe Reja, whose family are originally from North Macedonia, and Ava Max, that's a stage name, of course. Her family comes from what's now North Macedonia. The single that really kind of propelled her to fame uh, was Sweet But Psycho from 2018. And then a couple of others are, there's Era Estrefi, She's Kosovar. She was one of the three people who participated in the 2018 FIFA Moscow World Cup song. And then there's Nyomza Vitia. She's already quite prominent in writing songs for important people in the US. And Labinot Gashi, he's a rapper. His family are from Kosovo as well. And how does that heritage play into the music, as it were? You know, in, in general terms, it doesn't. They don't sing about their heritage. But one of the most interesting things is that they are often presented as people who have gone from refugee family to riches. And it's kind of not really true in most cases. What's interesting is that all of these stars, they're all aged between 25 and 31, and their parents all left, mostly Kosovo, in the very early 90s. And it's also interesting that many of these families, for example, Rita Ora's family and Dua Lipa's family, they didn't come from modest backgrounds at all. They came from very elite, middle-class backgrounds. And the fact is that those in the diaspora especially have done well because they were able to plug in to a kind of global pop music network, which is much, much harder for somebody who might be equally as good, but in Pristina or in Tirana. But even still, even some connection to elites in the arts and music abroad doesn't fully explain why so many big pop stars should come from one tiny country. You're completely right. I asked lots of Albanians in Kosovo and in Albania, why is it that there's this whole cohort of global stars at the one level, and then in each country throughout Europe, there are young Albanian stars on talent shows doing extremely well. I mean, we're talking scores of them. And actually, people were quite baffled. I had coffee the other day with Dukajin Lipa, Dua Lipa's father, and he was fascinating. He said, we have been squashed. He meant Albanians have been oppressed historically, which is certainly true. But he said, we're a very creative people, and the minute the pressure, the oppression is lifted, we flourish, and that's the phenomenon that we're seeing now. Tim, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. From politics to culture, there's plenty more analysis from our international network of correspondents in The Economist. To find the best subscription offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. That's all from us today. See you back here tomorrow. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact 
supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.